Hey everyone, welcome back to the Westbridge Church Podcast. To learn more about Westbridge Church, including our service times, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com. We hope this week's message encourages you to take your next step in your faith journey. Well, good morning, uh, Westbridge Church. Hope that you guys are doing well. So glad that you have joined us this morning. Uh, my name is Kyle Fox. For those of you who don't know, I serve as one of the student. I serve as the student pastor here, and uh, just a real treat uh, to get to introduce you to our guest speaker uh, speakers this morning, Dr. Christopher Yuan and his parents, Leon and Angela. Um, I, I had Dr. Yuan for uh, a class at Moody Bible Institute, and uh, it's one of those stories, and, and he, the way he teaches uh, winsomely, compassionately, uh, thoughtfully, and biblically, I, I, that class had a, a greater impact in my life than I, I probably will even ever know. And so uh, to have them here this morning is just a real treat, as uh, Dr. Yuan has spoken across uh, the U.S., even even different countries in the world, uh, on matters of faith and sexuality, particularly in one of the uh, hard conversations in our day and age with our culture, uh, what we're facing. Uh, I, I am just so excited for what the Lord's going to do this morning through them. So I'm actually going to pray as they come up uh, for them and for our hearts just to be eager to hear uh, and encouraged from, from what the Lord has done in his life and what he continues to do. So God, we ask and we continue in our time of worship that you would uh, speak to us, that you would encourage us. Lord, as, as we hear just a powerful story of salvation, Lord, that we would be reminded of our own salvation, that we would be encouraged. Lord, as, as we uh, hear from you, we ask that we would be eager. We ask that we would be open to what you have to teach us this morning. Would you help us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen. on trees, and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. But I quickly realized how wrong I was. The first night I stayed in my friend's rundown apartment uh, at the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after. October 31st, when little people wear masks, ring doorbells, and say, trick or treat. I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came to America after me, and we married the next year. I also assumed just because we were in love. We will simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then after years of unresolved issue and self-centered living. Our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that same year, our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school. He made an announcement, I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her, making our son gay. My son Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be because there's nothing I can do about it. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded quite differently. Think that three simple words, I am gay could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. 
But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have come me with a knife. It would have hurt less in my mind. Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never be much a reader. On the train, I began to read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called the number from the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. The lady was very excited. She told me, your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. I told her, this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has got on her side. But what I realized, her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know God was also work on me. So I started to go to church with her, then a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship. We would grow deeper into the understanding and love for God and His Word. While well, studying the Bible in my church in BSF, I also give my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead. As our son Christopher walked further and further away from God. For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. You see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys because I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan cannot take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old after I came across pornography at a friend's house. 
at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I moved to Louisville where I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry and dental school, and it was there that I came out of the closet and I began living openly as a gay man in the gay community. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs. I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied, so I began experimenting with drugs. And to be really clear, not all gay men do drugs. Not all gay men are promiscuous. Of course, some are, some are not. But I'm just telling my story, not everyone else's story, but I also want to tell you that when you encounter Christ, He will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I didn't have much money. If I was going to do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was received my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, and I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. You see, my dad's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mom told the dean, it is not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. You see, my mom knew that when it comes to her children, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than career. But you know, the sad reality is, in America, many people may go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they'll return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k, and oftentimes, we are forcing our children to do the same. How? Our parents put, putting more emphasis upon their children getting their homework done on a weekly basis, getting a better grade, getting into a good school? Or should Christian parents be putting more emphasis, actually the most emphasis, upon our children following Jesus? Nothing is more important than following Christ. But actually, I was not very happy about my mom's decision because she wasn't on my side, I felt. She was on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago to the bright lights in big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I'd exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs, but we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I signed, Love you forever, Ma. But little did I know, he never read them, and simply tossed them into the trash. My wife and I knew the only way if we want to see our son, we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta, so we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, 
I offered my son Christopher my very first Bible, but not surprisingly, he refused. But I left it on his counter anyway. We found out later he took my Bible and threw it into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over 100 prayer warriors from our church, from BSF, we cry out to God for our son Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold but very dangerous prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son back to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years, once fasted 39 days for our son Christopher. Every morning, she would literally spend hours inside her prayer closet, on her knee, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, praying for herself, for me, and for many, many others. She wrote out some of her prayers, and following is one of those prayers. I was staying in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stay in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede. Though it may take years, but I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. As what Chamber said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live all those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answer to prayer doesn't come quickly, and this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with their prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised. 
in Atlantic City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that get me more in trouble than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. Remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So, moms, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. So I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. Because I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. My mother's first words were, are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words. Just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice Paul didn't say that it's God's anger. He doesn't say that it's God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself, the words my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayer. So she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears. She knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down and Next to the phone happened to be a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape. And she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessings was longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. And I happened to pass by this garbage can. And as I looked at this trash, I thought... This is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking, this is the Word of God. And I certainly wasn't thinking, this is the answer. I simply thought, I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. 
But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a priest's sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. The prison guards handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into her office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the worst. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she wrote something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down. And I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison, but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence. A verdict I could not accept. Hang on the phone, the pains of grief torn at my broken heart like a knife. Endlessly, I stumbled up the steps and dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees as stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet strings of a hymn fill my ears and repeat over and over. It is well. It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like
days after receiving that devastating news, I was in my prison cell all by myself, just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. I lie there in my bed, and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. There is graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. Someone had written something else in the corner, and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plan that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God is using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation Israel to tell me that if God could have a plan for Israel in rebellion, in exile, he could have a plan for me. I had no idea where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that at that moment, I said a sinner's prayer, and then everything after that was perfect, like no more problems. Far from the truth. It was then that God began convicting me of my dependencies, which were many. The most obvious was drugs. Within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols, and there was just this one thing that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexuality. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. As I kept reading, I came across some passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament, that seemed to condemn this core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. And he even gave me a book explaining that view. So I'm like, great. With much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding Biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming, to justify the way I had been living. But it was God's indwelling Holy Spirit that convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God in his word. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find any shred of evidence, any single verse that might bless a monogamous same-sex relationship. So I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, a crossroads, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and His Word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship, by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality. By not allowing my desires to control who I am. And live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed 
Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. And that's true. But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore, he doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who might say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading the Bible, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say it again? Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. I thought in the past that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become a heterosexual. What does that mean? Well, I need to be sexually attracted to women. As a matter of fact, I felt that the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite such attractions, I would still need to flee temptation and resist sin. So heterosexuality is a correct direction, but it's not accurate enough. And it, actually, if you think about it, God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did God ever say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Both are wrong categories. Instead, God says, be holy, for I am holy. So the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm tempted. But I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of temptations. But change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life, and He called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places, and I realized that no matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle. He shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them, collected my parents, and I told them, I think God's calling me into ministry. And I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> They mailed the application into me to prison. I was so excited when I got it. I tore it open and began filling it out until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my reference to Moody. So amazingly, I was actually accepted. I was released from prison July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis in 2007, and 2014 received my doctorate of ministry. And then back in 2011, I had the immense honor of co-authoring a book with my mom called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote it together. So she wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two, she wrote, cha she wrote all the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you're going to have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent to prodigal. But you know, the best part of the story is how God and His power and His grace 
brought us all back together. This book now is in seven different languages, 100,000 copies in print. There's a study guide in the back that many small groups, discussion groups, parents, and even Christian high schools are now using as a textbook. Can you believe that? I mean, we did not think that our testimony would be used as a textbook, but it makes sense. Parents, I hope you realize our kids from pre-K are being flooded with resources on sexuality, all from a non-Christian worldview. They're being told all these stories. I'm finally who I am. I'm embracing who I am, and I'm so happy. God is not so concerned about us being happy. He wants us to be holy. The world says embrace yourself. God says embrace Christ. You know, you might think, oh, but I homeschool my kids, or, or I send my kids to Christian school. If your kids have that rectangle, you know what I'm talking about? That metal rectangle, smartphone, iPad, kids rarely, I mean, it's not even TV that we should be concerned about. It's these devices that has access to the world. You know what kids are watching now? YouTube, right? Any adults know, other than, I, I don't want to ask the youth leaders this because they probably know this. Any adults know what we call YouTube stars? Anyone know what they're called? There's a name for them. Parents, you guys know what they're called? Influencers. You guys know that? Grandparents, you know? The YouTube stars. They don't call them like TV stars or movie stars or whatever. They're called YouTube influencers. That's probably the most accurate description of what these people do. They, and they're doing it actually well, not in a good way that we should celebrate, but they are influencing our kids not for good. I just happened to look at the top influencers, YouTube influencers. You'd be surprised at the enormously high percentage of the top, and these top YouTube influencers, they have hundreds and hundreds of millions of followers. How many of these at the top hundred are openly LGBTQ+, and the rest are affirming allies? Do you think that they're influencing this younger generation toward God? So where are the stories, these stories, and so... Our story is being used to be shown as a counter-narrative. I mean, it I don't like to be thought of like our story as a counter-narrative. It should be just the only narrative, which is God's story. So people are using that. Um, and I'm really convinced that the primary responsibility to teach our kids about sex and sexuality shouldn't be long in the hands of the public schools. I don't know if you heard me clearly. Let me say it again. The primary responsibility to teach your kids about sex should not belong in the hands of the public schools. Amen? It shouldn't also belong in the hands of Hollywood or YouTube influencers or media or their peers. You know should hold, who should hold that main responsibility? Parents. And you know who else? Not just parents. Grandparents. Any grandparents in here? Raise your hands. Any great-grandparents in here? You know why I'm adding you to that list? You have too much time on your hands. <laughs> but seriously, grandparents, great-grandparents, Think back when you were younger, when you were teenagers. How much did you listen to your parents at that age? 
Maybe, Grandma, you have more of a listening ear to the grandkids than the parents do. Are we using it to throw a lifeline to our kids who are drowning in a tsunami of lies? I gave this challenge at a church, and it wasn't even a city church or suburban church. It was in rural Oklahoma. When we finished, this old lady made a beeline toward our book table. And she said, I need 10 books. <laughs> I was like, wow. You just need one. No, young man, I need 10. She said, one for myself, nine for every one of my grandchildren. She said, I'm mailing all of them a book, and then I'm going to read it with them, and I'm going to go through the study guide with them. That's a parent that's actually taking seriously the God-given responsibility we all have to not to give it to the world, but actually to take it back. I think it's time we take it back. Amen? Who wants to take it back? Any fathers in here that want to take it back? Grandfathers? It's time we take it back. Because silence is no longer an option. If we don't talk to our kids about sex, I promise you, I guarantee you, the world will. My newest book called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel is actually where we dig deeper into what is, a, what is biblical sexuality. Because oftentimes, as adults, when we talk to our kids about sex and sexuality, or when we even talk to each other, or messages that we hear, something like this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, this is bad, this is bad. And those are important messages. But we can't build a Christian life on God's no. What is God's yes? Quite simply this, either chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. And that is good news for all. Amazingly, God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. My parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and truth on this issue of sexuality. And if that wasn't big enough blessing, God has a sense of humor because he had brought me back to Moody where I taught in the Bible department for 12 years. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> but God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. You know, I look back upon my life our lives, so many years apart from Christ. And I see some really bad decisions that we made. Some of those decisions that have resulted in some big, lasting consequences. Like being HIV positive. But you know, I realized something. I'm no different than any, any of you. All of our days are numbered. Not one person here in this room has ever been promised tomorrow. But don't we take it for granted? You know, it took contracting this virus for me to realize a very important truth. That as a child of God, I must live with a sense of urgency. You know this world we live in today, is it not a crazy world? I mean, governments falling, threat of terrorism, war, orphans, widows, disease, tsunamis, fires, earthquakes. When I look at the world today, you know what I'm really convinced of? The world doesn't need another good Christian. A good Christian who might go to church every Sunday. Nice person, but doing little for the kingdom of God. We don't need any more of these good, nice Christians. You know, this world demands our great Christians. Christians who don't settle for mediocrity. Christians who don't care what the person on the right says or what the person on the left says, but they're living for an audience of one. Christians who know that they've been crucified with Christ, and they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. Christians who are living with a sense of urgency. You know, there's going to come one day, whether we're ready or not, in the blink of an eye, 
where we will stand before our God, our Creator. And my hope and prayer is that He can say to you face to face, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a God who loved us first. Who, though you created us in your image, we fell in Adam. And though we ran from you, you ran for us. You sent your son Jesus, who lived a perfect life in our place, who willingly went to the cross in our place, took the sins of the world and died on the cross so that we could be reconciled to you. But then you rose him on the third day so that we might live for you. God, forgive us. Forgive us for forgetting who we are and who you are. Forgive us, oh God, for chasing after the vain things of this world that really don't matter. Oh God, help us this day, this new day that you have made, oh God, to live as if it were our last so that we would tell others about you. Lord, we love you. Oh, help us to love you more than life. For it is in the name above all name, it is in the name of your son Jesus that we ask this. And the people of God said, amen. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be helpful for others, please be sure to subscribe or share. To experience other messages or find helpful resources, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com.